This is from Justin McCain, a podcast where Mike Robertson and Bob LaRue watch one critically acclaimed film and one terrible film and talk about how they are the same. Welcome, everybody, to From Justin to Kane. We, as always, have a doozy of an episode this week. We're looking at two films, one of which is maybe the worst film we've done yet, and the other one is just like a stone-cold classic at this point. So, the terrible film we're examining is 2003's Quigley, uh, starring Gary Busey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our great film is uh, 2007's uh Juno starring Elliot Page and Michael Cera. Uh when you were talking about Quigley you forgot to mention that it is 2003's straight to video Christian man dies and becomes a dog specifically movie. a white pomeranian. Yeah, so Gary Busey dies and becomes a white pomeranian in Quigley. So well, I I'm sorry I I that was a disservice to the film Quigley. I think I should have expanded yeah, you're right, Mike. You're yeah, right. I, I, well, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not calling you out or anything. Just saying, uh, when you're talking about how it is a terrible film, a turd, one might say, a turd of a film. Yeah, it. Uh, you really gotta like. I feel like saying straight to DVD is like a checkbox. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that makes it bad, probably. Mm-hmm. And then right. also, Christian film, which is like an interesting layer to have on top of this film because mm-hmm. I also went into it not being aware that it was like a Christian film and then it was just slapping me across the face with sort of Christian moral lessons yeah. and blind devotion and all this stuff and I was just kind of like wow this is a weird vibe and then it it just didn't dawn on me until you told me that it was a Christian film and then I was like oh this makes sense I get yeah. it uh, um, but anyway yeah so those are the movies both, yeah. uh, both post millennium yeah both Post millennium, I will say so. Quigley uh, felt like no other. Truly, <laughs> the longest film I've ever seen. At a, at a tight ninety minutes, it was the longest movie I've <laughs> and watched. And yeah, it I didn't have a three act structure, which was interesting. It just no. sort of meandered. Um, it did, yeah. Gary Busey was given a list of things he had to do without ever being told what they were, which is an interesting approach to take. Um, yeah. And then it just meandered and you kept meeting characters that just really weren't that important. Uh, and then it ended. It did. It truly ended, thankfully. Yeah. So uh, it was wild. Whereas Juno is just a good time. It's a great movie. Yeah. I, it, I haven't seen it since it came out. So it was nice to revisit it and be like, yeah, that movie still holds up for the most part. Like 85%. I would say 85%. All of the parts that don't hold up are the parts exactly that you think don't hold up. Yeah. That being uh, just the stupid way that they talk. <laughs> Maybe yeah. people like that. I don't know. But well, I think I, it was like a false hipness. Yeah, exactly. Especially with it was like, like a the Jason Bateman vibe, like between yeah. Jason Bateman and Elliot Page, which is kind of like, mm, I don't even know if that was cool in 2007. I was skeptical too. Yeah. Part of it felt like. Uh, well, it's not. It doesn't have to be cool. No, but... No, I think, I mean, I didn't do any research on this movie. That was <laughs> that was your job. Uh, I know that what? Diablo Cody kind of 
Yeah, this was a very autobiographical film. Yes, kind it of was. a pastiche of her, of of her life. Yeah. So. And like her time living in, I think Minneapolis. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Anywho, well, well, let's contextualize the movies, and I guess we'll start with Juno. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so Juno came out in two thousand and seven. Uh, directed by Jason Reitman, Ivan Reitman's son. Uh, written by Diablo Cody. Yes, it's like a sort of a. It has some autobiographical um, aspects to the screenplay that she applied to it. Um, it stars Elliot Page, Michael Cera, Jennifer Garner, and Jason Bateman. Um, it won Best Original Screenplay. It did, yeah. At the Oscars, um, which is pretty cool. It was so the film takes place over four seasons, um, basically to like express the passages of time for the main character's pregnancy and the three terms. Um, it, but it was shot in 30 days in Vancouver. So logistically depicting um, the four seasons in 30 days was a nightmare. Uh, and they had to do a lot of movie trickery and, you know, just trying to make it look like different seasons and like planting flowers that weren't actually right. And just, you oh. know, trying to like make it visual. And then there was one day in the production, it was March and it dumped snow in Vancouver. And so they halted the schedule and they got all these shots where they needed snow. So they kind of had to be adaptable and try to make it look like winter when they had snow. Cause, cause apparently movie snow, like shipping it in is super expensive. So that day of snowfall actually saved the production a ton of money. That's cool. Yeah. Um, apparently, so uh, Billy Joel Armstrong of Green Day loved the line in which, I forget who it is. Somebody says, you don't need to go to East Jesus Nowhere or whatever. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. He, he loved that line so much that he named a song East Jesus Nowhere on their album 21st Century something. Uh, 20, 21st Century Breakdown. Yeah, 21st Century Breakdown. Yeah, I'm, song, a, Green East Day. Jesus I'm a Green Day fan. I oh, celebrate their entire catalog, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't well, know I mean, this. I mean, I was I was around when Green Day, I mean, I was like 10 or whatever when Green Day like hit mm-hmm. for the first time. Yeah, their fandom is kind of grandfathered in you yeah. know, a, little bit, a little bit just because it's like it was the cool music at the time. Right, right. I, uh, I just yeah. watched um, Jesus of Suburbia for the first time, the 10-minute music video. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very dark and disturbing. Yeah. And I was like, wow, teens were watching this when this came out? And, like, kids? I mean, uh, somebody relates to it. I'm sure. Def- I'm definitely sure. Definitely goth kids who do drugs. Well, it was just, like, bizarrely raunchy for something that was would have been just on basic cable. But that's, that's music videos, though. Music videos are always pushing the envelope. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. Um, so, an interesting thing. Jennifer Garner, she was an A-list um, actor when this film came out and instead of getting paid uh, whatever the union rate would be for like an A-list person she opted to get a percentage thinking that it would be like a really low budget box office but then it was the highest grossing best picture nomination of that year really it grossed over a hundred million dollars and so she ended up getting paid more for Juno than any other film in her like uh, career wow that's uh, she gambled and she she won Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, it's the highest grossing Best Picture nom of its year. It was nominated for, I think, five Oscars and it won Best Original Screenplay. And that's all I have nice. for research. What are your thoughts on, whenever you hear about people who are great screenwriters, 
you know, Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, right? Uh, Diablo Cody. There's like, there's probably more, but just people who write very unique dialogue, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally, I find that that kind of stuff doesn't age well. Like you watch an old Kevin Smith movie where everybody's like, wow, he was a great writer. You watch it now, it's like, oof. Mm-hmm. Oof, this is rough. Same with like watching this. Some of the dialogue was pretty rough, but yeah, it was a bit cringy. I'm gonna but put I, it in my cringe compilation. Yeah, it's for sure cringy. I think it um it comes down to the writing doesn't need to be beautiful. It needs to be realistic within the story, mm-hmm. right? So when when it comes, it basically comes down to like, oh, how like normal is this dialogue? Does it sound like dialogue or does it sound like people talking? And that's like a really weird line to walk. Mm-hmm. And I think she did it. Yeah, I think the way yeah, that the it, character it, but, Juno talks is like fine for the most mm-hmm. part. Sometimes mm-hmm. Juno says like some like cringy whatever things that kids supposedly say maybe. Yeah. It's mostly just the scene where Juno goes into the gas station at the beginning and then Rain Wilson is like speaking like uh, an insane person. Well, well, if it isn't McGuff the crime dog, back for another test? I think the first one was defective. The plus sign looks more like a division symbol, so I remain unconvinced. Third test today, Mama Bear. Your ego is prego. No doubt about it. It's really easy to tell. Is your nipples real brown? Yeah. Maybe your little boyfriend's got mutant sperms. Knocked you up twice. Silencio, old man! Look, I just drank my weight in Sunny D, and I gotta go pronto. What's the prognosis, fertile myrtle? Minus or plus? I don't know. It's not seasoned yet. That ain't no etch-a-sketch. This is one doodle that can't be undid, Holmes Gillett. Right. Just saying nonsense right. constantly is like, who is this guy? Yeah, I don't know. You you know how like you can set rules, like you, you watch a play and it's like the dialogue is super specific to that style of writing. Mm-hmm. Or like Aaron Sorkin has like his style of writing and blah blah blah. I think that's what was tried in this film, and maybe it just didn't hit the mark. It just fell short slightly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought some of the like the 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 moments in the screenplay that are probably the things that got the movie noticed are the parts that age the worst. The movie actually does a really good job with like the uh, emotional journey of Juno, the character and all of like the scenes between characters like interacting are really well done. Mm -hmm. It's just like that. The original dialogue that makes it unique is the part that's the worst. Yeah. Cause I I think the movies are actually pretty well written overall. Definitely. And the structure is cool. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's lots of nice moments in it. But yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really good observation. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. Should we chat about uh, whatever the hell the other movie is, Quigley? Quigley from 2003. Also, may I ask real quick? Sorry to interrupt. No. So you suggested this movie. How did you hear about it? Um. Well, so we decided to do Juno. We Then we were like, well, we need a bad movie. And we were just brainstorming stuff. And I just went on Letterboxd and I just kind of like looked up a bad movie list. Right, right. And then somehow Quigley caught my eye. Well, you uh, love Pomeranians. I love famously. Pomeranians, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, okay, there's a movie called Quigley. It's about a little Pomeranian. But then I found out that the story of the movie is that Gary Busey dies uh, in a, not Gary Busey playing himself, but like Gary Busey playing a character dies. 
Yeah, but also kind of Gary Busey because it's semi, similarly to Juno, semi autobiographical. There you go. There's a there's a fur, there's a connection there. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so he's playing a character, and that character dies, and then is reincarnated as, or not reincarnated, but comes back to life that day as a Pomeranian named Quigley, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then God, via a guardian angel tells Quigley to just do some things to help people because the character Gary Busey was playing is kind of mean and he's not concerned about anybody but himself. Yeah. Yeah, he has to learn a lesson about family, about faith, and I don't know, helping others, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Quigley is a 2003 straight-to-video like Christian movie Mm -hmm. about the plot that I just described. So it's like a kid's movie, and it's about a dog. Mm-hmm. So it's got a lot of things that are would make parents rent it at the video store. Easy sell. Yeah. Very, very hard to find information about this film. Uh, but I did find a lot of information about the people and the things surrounding the film. I just couldn't really find anything about the production itself. Um, but I do have some wild, wild things to read. <laughs> It was written and directed by William Byron Hillman, who is a actor slash writer slash director. If you go to his website, william.hillman.com, he has just so many hustles going on. He's, he's an actor, film and TV director, screenwriter. He does script consultation, produces. He's an author. He's got like young adult books. He's got books based on Quigley. So travel Quigley, guides. He's got travel guides. He writes mysteries, romance. Uh, he's also a musician, so he's got a like music that he sells, and he he's also a product spokesperson. For what? Uh, supposedly, he was a spokesperson for, let's see, Clear Bright, Handoff, No Touch, um, Practibat, which is an athletic baseball hitting device. I don't know. It's, uh, it just says on his website. National education, money, the history of trading, national tour. Like, doesn't, it's not really clear if how that's, is that, is that one sentence? Is that a bunch of different things? <laughs> I know. It's really confusing uh, on the website. He's done a lecture circuit on the art of low budget filmmaking, and he's done it at schools like UCLA, Berkeley, um, Oklahoma University, San Diego State. So he's been in a bunch of commercials. He's like a handsome guy, kind of. Yeah, he, especially when he's younger. When he was younger, yeah. He, now he kind of looks like a bargain bin Kenny Rogers. But <laughs> oh, I but love yeah, how back, mean back, that is. <laughs> well, he does, though. If you look at a picture of him, he looks just like Kenny Rogers, but like a little off, you know? Yeah, just like a he's little. Still good, he's still handsome. I'm not yeah, going to say this, this man is ugly. I'm just saying he's like, he's a handsome guy. He just kind of look, looks like Kenny Rogers if, you know, president's choice. Um, but anyway, I, on his Goodreads account, um, he has a wild autobiography. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Uh, he was born in Chicago. His father was an accountant for mobster Al Capone. Uh, and okay. as an adult, one of his best friends was an FBI secret service agent. Um, he toured as a singer, moved to Hollywood to be an actor. Um, he sold some screenplays. He's a national motivational speaker, product spo- spokesperson, and screenplay consultant. He did. Uh, he was on Days of Our Lives for two years. He was also on Ice Station Zebra, and he was also on Bewitched. Hmm. 
Um, he's got a global following as an actor slash filmmaker slash novelist. He also is like a dog advocate, I guess. Like he's all about animal rights. But specifically dogs? Yeah, and specifically Pomeranians. <laughs> so um, uh. I, this is taken from a press release for one of his movies. William Byron Hillman has worked with such major stars like Gary Busey, Rock Hudson, Tony Curtis, Shelley Long, as well as with most film studios and television networks. Like that's fairly vague. Um, but his passion is children and animals. While he's written genres from comedies to thrillers, his passion is hearing kids laugh. Wow. Uh, Bill has befriended many stunt performers and loves working with them to design action stunts that entertain kids of all ages. He believes one of the greatest sounds in the world is laughter and strives to develop scenes that lead to prosperity. So some of this biography sounds like it was written by an AI. Yeah, it does, um, isn't it? <laughs> Fuck. While many of his films enjoyed success, uh, when he wrote Quigley, it opened a unique definition for amusement and enthusiasm. Bill is an avid Pomeranian lover and has joined Palm groups in every part of the world. As the writer, producer, and director of the motion picture Quigley, the character instantly conceived an international dog hero. So, yeah, it seems kind of like... I, I don't know if that was written by human or not. Two million copies of the DVD are sold, so it's actually considered a mega hit on his website. And I guess that's a lot of copies of a straight-to-video Christian DVD. It absolutely is, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Will Will Hill, I'll call him, or Bill Hill. <laughs> so Bill Hill, um, he's uh, he, he kind of has made some action movies. He's kind of made some kids' movies. He's made, like, some Christian stuff. Seems like he's kind of one of those opportunist directors who will just do stuff cheap and for whatever genre that'll sell, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think whenever we cover a bad movie, there's like a 30% chance it'll be fit in, like the director will fit into that kind of niche of just someone who's like, I got to make money somehow in Hollywood. You know, we did a talking cat and it was a guy who did softcore gay porn movies, uh, doing kids movies on the side. <laughs> and that's the thing, in, like an interesting dichotomy in Hollywood where you have people who work in both like. Uh, super low budget kid movies and super low budget horror films. Well, what's interesting is the moral dichotomy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, and he he's in a good example because he's done Christian films, but he's also done some pretty intense horror movies. Mm-hmm. Like Double Exposure. Yeah. Weird. So, it yeah, it's just kind of an interesting thing that you see a lot. And I mean, it kind of exposes, a, uh, I think opportunism is the operative word here mm-hmm. because... Uh, you know, the opportunism of making Christian films. It's like, it's not really about spreading the, the word of God. It's about making money for somebody yeah. for dirt cheap. Uh, Quigley is uh, one of the 20 best children movies in the history of film, according to World News Network, which is a, if you go to this website, World News Network, it looks like, again, it was generated by an AI. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. And a lot of the articles are, some person will write one article only on this website. Like if you look at the authors, whenever you click their names, they, it's not like they have like a whole compilation of a whole bunch of articles on the site. It's just kind of, it seems like it's just random names made up to write articles just to promote stuff. So if you look at the list, it's just like only heavy hitters for kids movies, you know, Lion King, Wizard of Oz, Mary Poppins, Moana, uh, Finding Nemo, and then Quigley is in there. So it's like, must've been, this website must've been made up for this, just to promote crappy stuff. Huh. 
because they have a lot of top 10 lists and it's a lot of that same thing. So there's a bit of a conspiracy theory. I'm kind of like, I'm kind of going down this random road of just like, why does this website exist? What is the World News Network? Why is it promoting Quigley amongst all these other really actually good movies? Yeah, no kidding. This uh, mm-hmm. website's pretty wild, actually. Yeah, it's a graphic design nightmare, but yeah, it so is. is the poster for literally every movie that this Hellman guy's made. Yeah. Gary Busey's in this movie. We can talk a little bit about that. I think um, I think we should delve into Gary Busey. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Gary Busey is, he's an odd fellow generally. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of got famous playing Buddy Holly in the 70s and was like, oh, you know, a, a pretty big A-lister I would say maybe a minus. Well, yeah, he's been in some cool action movies. Um, he had a, like he had a good career, seventies, eighties, and nineties. I mean, yeah. Uh, but then in the late eighties, he got in a motorcycle accident, and he wasn't wearing a helmet. Yeah, he got basically he died briefly, and he got some severe brain damage. I am I'm to understand, or something something happened because ever since then he's kind of been a little bit. Uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, just kind of an odd guy. Yeah. He's he's kind of known for being kind of impulsive. He kind of just says nonsense sometimes. Like people call them Buseyisms, where he'll just say kind of random comedic sentences or sentences that are just like non sequiturs that are funny and how odd they are. But after he got in the motorcycle accident, he, I mean, I, I can't confirm that he became a born again Christian, but like in 96, he says, I'm proud to tell Hollywood I'm a Christian. For the first time, I am now free to be myself. Mm-hmm. And he cites the motorcycle accident as well as a cocaine overdose uh, in 1995 uh, as, event- as events that strengthened his religious faith. So, oh. so, but in 97, he also had a, a cancerous tumor in his head. Which was removed. Which was removed. So it seems like the... Motorcycle accident, head injury, slash cocaine, overdosing, just like all of the stuff that he's been doing had uh, kind of, yeah, added up. Well, he's, he's basically put his brain through the most intense ringer you possibly could yeah. while staying alive. Yeah, you I know, know what I mean? Yeah, so when you see him talk in real life, it's it's like there's something a little off about it. I mean, I feel... I feel bad for the guy. Um, yeah. But also, this is taken from Wikipedia, but according to, he was on Celebrity Rehab, 2008, and uh, the, the psychiatrist suspected that Busey's brain injury has had a greater effect on him than most realized. He described it as essentially weakening his mental filters and causing him to speak and act impulsively. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. And um, so, anyway, because... Quigley is a faith-based film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the most logical reason that Gary Busey would have done the film. Yeah, and it's I, I just it's so interesting. There's like no doubt in my mind that he had an effect on the script because mm-hmm. of how uh, similar what happens in the film, or like what what the film you know deals with, and how similar that is to his personal life. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, and, and, you know, the anecdote about him freaking out about what heaven looks like and how the couch was wrong and all that stuff yeah. because he's being heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he got in a fight with somebody on set who had also kind of had a near death experience uh, about what heaven looked like. 
And, you know, uh, this is a podcasts aren't a visual medium. No. But if you see the movie, they represent heaven by just having a couch in like a room and there's four people in dressed sloppily as angels. And then and there's just haze. a bunch of fog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a mirror. Like, Don't forget about the mirror. Yeah. I think that I'm, my assumption is, I can't confirm this, my assumption it was just a lot of the indoor sets were filmed in a church it seems like they just kind of like use whatever room they could find in a church and just like well this is heaven we're just gonna put a couch in yeah he just like wakes up in heaven sitting on a couch yeah which is weird super super weird um anyway lots to get into with uh gary Busey, but we're not gonna go spend too much time on him i, I do want to let you know that quigley 2 is currently in production and it's a christmas film and it's a Christmas film, that's right. Um, and I discovered this because, well, I mean, they have a website, quigleysite.com is what it's called. So if you go there, you can find information about just anything Quigley related. Also, William Byron Hillman's uh, website, williamhillman.com, will have some information there. You can see all of the glorious posters. But uh, also on their Facebook page, uh, I found some very funny updates on the Quigley movie. <laughs> so in 2019 there was like a series of posts um that said the quigley these the, so these are all facebook posts and they're basically like one or two sentences each mm-hmm. someone is basically writing quigley updates every other day as if people are like clamoring to find out what's going on with quigley too so the quigley train needed refueling and the tune-up is almost done can you hear the engine purring that is a post. Very cryptic. What? But also quick- there's a train on the cover of the poster. <laughs> yeah, I know. They keep, yeah, they mention the train on the, yeah. <laughs> they keep saying the, the Quigley train is happening and it's like, oh, weird. <laughs> but yeah, if you look at the poster, there is a train on it. So a, tr- a train does feature into the film. So uh, another post says the Quigley 2 train is on the tracks and starting its engines. We will oh soon have God. some new artwork by a pro poster maker and we will share as soon as it is in our hands. Uh, that is from the same day. So they posted multiple <laughs> times, kind of worded it differently and added a little bit more information. <laughs> Later in 2019, I can hear it. The Quigley 2 train warming up and getting ready for the cast to come together before boarding. Uh, wow. In, in April 2020, they posted, Quigley 2 will be coming in 2021. Got delayed by the virus, but things are getting back on track. Stay tuned. In uh, the fall of 2020, someone posted, the virus may have delayed Quigley too, but in our heart of hearts, Quigley is ready to bounce back in front of the camera as soon as it's possible, both in cost and safely. Quigley wishes you all a very happy Thanksgiving. And there's one like and one comment on the post, and the comment is, yay, Quigley. Um, Oh, this is so surreal. So uh, William Hilliam, William Hilliam, So William Hellman wrote some Quigley books. So this is another one of our movies that have the uh, associated companion books. The phantasmagorical companion book. So if you're interested in what's going on with Quigley the Pomeranian, you can find these books. Yeah, in the canon, you can find these books. And so you can get a head start on the Quigley 2 story if you want to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the synopsis of Quigley 2. An autistic staffed toy company is in trouble. Slackers Mitch, Vinny, and Moe are hired to shut them down. Heaven's bell rings. Two dogs, Quigley and Knuckles, are dispatched to Earth along with 
wingless angel Thurman to save a town, a toy company, and stop the gargantuan mess planned by the slackers. I I want to watch that film, masochistically yeah. speaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and also my question is, is Quigley also like someone who died and came back as a dog or is now Quigley free to roam around as a dog? And same question about Knuckles, I guess. You know what's interesting? The soul of Quigley, the white dog that Gary uh-huh. Busey hits, is never mentioned. So no, when, yeah, no. when the dog is in heaven and they're having the conference with the angels, Gary Busey says, oh, they're going to let me go back. And then the one angel's like, you're going back as this dog, Quigley. He's like, <laughs> I hate dogs. <laughs> Whatever happened to dog, the dog Quigley, I'm, like the actual spirit and soul? Did that dog just go straight to hell or something? Well, the person... For jaywalking? The human dying and then coming back as a dog trope. Mm-hmm. And it is a trope. Um, yeah, that's a thing. And yeah, the concern about the dog's soul is never is never dealt with. Yeah. Um, this is truly Pomeranian exploitation. This is like, yeah, one of the greatest entries of Pomeranian exploitation. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, I, I've got more to say about Quigley, <laughs> believe it good, or not. Good, good, Yeah. <laughs> the not, people nothing about know. Nothing about the making of, of the, the film. The only making of fact I could find was that Gary Busey sometimes would help decorate the sets. Which, which is nuts. Which adds to the mystique. I, I but, think um, there is as much surrounding this film as there is Citizen Kane. Just mm-hmm. in terms of tertiary information and drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say they're equal in in what how cloudy the mystique is around the two films. Well, that, that fact, the factoid about uh, Gary Busey helping decorate some of the sets is like, did he actually move stuff around? I know I, that he I said... What, what he did is he showed up and he started complaining. He was just bitching yeah. about how it didn't look like heaven exactly yeah so they just say nicely in the dvd extras that he helped decorate some of the sets but he was just like there's no mirrors in heaven this couch isn't the the couch they had in heaven (laughs) also like what a weird note to be like no the couch is different in heaven okay yeah i mean i could go on i've got so much more to read but let's let's just cut cut it off there because i can squeeze some of this in during the the comparisons i think good there should be um a dedicated minisode once Quigley 2 comes out. Yeah, we should I, actually. I, I think you and me just bought our tickets and we just boarded uh, <laughs> the Quigley train. And uh, I can hear that motor purring. It's been purring for like 22 months, but I can still hear it purring. Well, they're still they're still in pre-production. They haven't started filming yet. Well, I know. They've been in pre-production for two years, but it's yeah. going to happen, I swear. Yeah. I mean, uh, just a, such a just strange... Just think about how many fucking Pomeranians they've gone through. Oh, I know. Probably like they just... probably went through like five of them on the first movie and then they keep casting Pomeranians and they just get old and ugly and then you got to get another one because they're all pristine and white. Yeah. Angelic, one might say. I got to say the Pomeranian acting in this movie was actually actually exceptional. It, it was, yeah. That Pomeranian <laughs> did all of, hit all of its marks. It looked lifted around. Lifted props. It, yeah, played, it lifted played props. Played computer games. It played CD-ROMs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it 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 looked at things and like reacted in like the way that they got the pomeranian to like look at the right, the right direction and like move its head around at specific moments was like and, and it would use its eyes. Is like it read the stock market. Yeah, and I kind of believed market. it. I, I will say the pomeranian did some heavy 
heavy, heavy lifting. Did you say, would you say it outacted Gary Busey? I went, I would say it outacted everyone. Oz Perkins, uh, the Curtis Armstrong, Curtis Armstrong. Like, yeah, that, that dog did so much. And you know what? Yeah. Acting's in the eyes and that Pomeranian fucking proved it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It like it's, didn't even bark. It didn't even like ham it up. No. Yeah. Well, it's, it's such an odd choice. Because I know William Helium, William Hellman, Jesus, his name is impossible to say. <laughs> William Hillman, I know he um, he fancies himself a bit of a screenwriting guru. Mm. You wouldn't know it from the script for this film, but he's he, he fancies himself a screenwriting guru. So the the central flaw with the film is that you never get to see the human reaction to what the is going on, like because. Yeah. Because the character of Archie is always represented as Quigley. Mm-hmm. So the dog doesn't emote enough for you to know how the Gary Busey character is is like reacting. Because you only see Gary Busey as a human when the guardian angel is around. And the guardian angel only shows up to say, go do something. Mm-hmm. He doesn't ever, ever tell him what to do. Mm-hmm. But this guy, I will say, he's a very good self-advocate. Mm-hmm. He is, in his own eyes, changing the world one word at a time. Mm-hmm. I would say he's also bewildering the world one word at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think he's just a great salesman. He's selling snake oil and he's doing a great job at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but we we did kind of agree over text while we were watching it that it was maybe the worst movie we've seen I think it takes the cake, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there's we've watched some bad movies. We watch a bad movie every week. Some of them are better than others. Well, you uh, you know, so like an example, Robot Jocks is not a bad film. It's like No. It's like a bad movie, but it's not bad. Speaking of Quigley, there's a dog aggressively barking outside my apartment. Oh, this I can't is perfect. Hear it. Oh, we gotta good. keep it in. We gotta keep it in. I can fucking hear it. It's so loud. Oh my god. Anyways, whatever. It's Quigley just barking up a storm. <laughs> Um, yeah, but this was like the worst movie we've seen. Maybe it was like competently made, but it looked like it was filmed on like a, you know, a DV camera from the early 2000s, which it likely was. It's probably filmed on like a X01S. Wow. That's nice. Nice. Do you remember that camera? I, uh, I've never used one, but I do know about it. Yeah. Big Canon shoulder mounted, like red, uh, colored camera. Yeah. Yeah. So it was probably filmed on an XL1S. Uh so in glorious 480p. <laughs> maybe in 480i even, maybe. <laughs> it would be, yeah, 480i. Um, um so <laughs> uh, that's such a deep cut. Just like a technical deep cut. <laughs> I love yeah, it. <laughs> I've used it. I I had the option of getting cuz I did buy a camera in, around the time this movie came out. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Uh, and I had the option of the XL1S, but it was just outside of my price range. So I bought the uh, next step down, the Canon GL2, which, which is also was in DVD 320p tape. or something. No, it was also 480. Oh, okay, good. But it, I couldn't do widescreen, so I just did four by three. That's fine. You can crop, make it like two two hundred pixels by mm-hmm. three three hundred pixels or something. Yeah, maybe yeah. get get a nice widescreen. Yeah, and it didn't have like a 24p mode, which was like a game changer when you were making movies in the 2000s. Is like, ooh, you can shoot 24p. Now it looks like it's 24 frames. But yeah. It's not actual 24p. It's just like a mode that 
kind of like takes out some of the frames to make were, it look like it's 24 frames per second, but it's not. Were the lenses like it was it a fixed lens, like a zoom, yeah. like built into it? Oh, so you like couldn't shoot anamorphic if you wanted to. That would be wonky though, because the resolution would be so low and the pixels are getting stretched. That would look like shit. Yeah. I mean, it didn't, it looked great at the time, but yeah. now I look back on that and it's just like, this was essentially just like a, a camcorder, like a home camcorder, but a fancy one. But you know what's interesting? That look is coming back. There's like Kinda. a there's a hipster movement sort of happening, um, and that look is like being sought after. It was a big big deal at the time. I remember. Do you still own that camera? I have it in the house, yeah, but it's busted. Like the zoom is screwed up, so sometimes it'll just randomly zoom. Oh, okay. Uh, and the uh, FireWire ports screwed up, so I can't export footage. Oh, does it shoot to actual tape? Yeah, and so you have to sh- film it on DV tape. So it's like little and then, mini things. And then get a reader and like digitize the tape. Well, you, you mean you don't need a reader because you can just export it with the FireWire right into the computer. But what? But your FireWire doesn't work. And yeah, well, the FireWire port on the camera doesn't work. And then I also don't own a, ca- a computer that has a FireWire port anymore. Like nobody does. That's true. That's true. FireWire is so, long gone. Interesting. Yeah, so Interesting. The last time I used like a DV camera, I think was probably like 2010 or 11. Mm-hmm. Definitely like a, an, an old school format for sure. Well, it's coming back in a major way. It's like vinyl. Yeah. Do you, is it actually? It, it, it is. Yeah. I find a lot of like music videos, um, short films, like, like artsy stuff. Like you never see a TV show get shot that way, but no. that sort of format, there's like such a nostalgia around it that I do think it's coming back. And it's used a lot, I think, in like sort of the indie side of films for like memories, flashbacks, moments that are sort of outside the scope of the main narrative or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting used in commercials and music videos a lot. Well, there you go. Yeah. But it's not HD, is it? No. But but you, you can up-res it after. Okay. So like, or, or shoot into an external recorder and like shoot it up-resed and at a better codec. So it still hmm. looks like shit, but it's 422 ProRes. Mm-hmm. That's just a bunch of technical jargon we can cut out. But anyways, it's interesting. There's like ways to do it that's very interesting. Mm, that is wild, yeah. Yeah. Um, nothing is nothing interesting about Juno, though. No, Juno is just run of the mill. <laughs> was it filmed on 16 millimeter? It looked 16 millimeter. I don't think so. No, I think it was 35 millimeter. It's just super oh, okay. grainy. Yeah, I think from a production standpoint, it was pretty much just the most run of the mill film like it was low budget is an indie film it was a fox searchlight um release mm-hmm. um but yeah as for format i think it was 35 mil i haven't read on that though like i don't know what stock they shot on or anything but also it was shot 185 to one so maybe it's three perf and then that would make it a little grainier i don't know anywho it was shot in burnaby <laughs> Um, yeah, well, let's get into the similarities because I will say this was also maybe one of the harder episodes. I I have like 10. Okay, well, I mean, we've spoken about, we've already done like almost the full episode length already. And it's <laughs> mostly just synopsizing uh, facts about the movie Quigley, and which also, none of them talk about how the movie was made or why the movie was made. Well, so. I think there's something really intriguing about how much mystery is surrounding this film. Yeah. I found there was a bit of a rabbit hole. Like once you 
tried to find out something about Quigley, you'd learn something you'd learn something else that was not about Quigley, but it was about something Quigley adjacent, which was more interesting. And then you'd learn something else and something else and something. So many fascinating things surrounding the film. You know what the you film should itself do? is boring. Start a community on the internet, r slash Quigley uh, BTS. And then mm-hmm. just have like, just kind of scour the internet and see who comes out of the woodwork with little snippets of information. Um, and then maybe you can compile a book about the behind the scenes and uh, release it in a few years. Yeah. Maybe in time with the train arriving at the station with Quigley 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. Uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's get into it. Mm, yeah, let's get into it. That's my line, Mike. Just kidding. Yeah, it's one of That's your fine. many catchphrases. Okay, start us off, my man. Uh, okay, I mean, obviously, uh, starting off real easy and simple, right off the top, both films have an animated opening sequence with uh, bespoke music. Nice. I didn't even realize that. They both kind of have like a hand-drawn, cheap aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quig- Quigley, for obvious reasons, they hired someone who was like, I can draw. Great. You can make the opening sequence for this film. And... Uh, yeah, whereas uh, Juno, they hired like an agency to make the animated opening sequence, and it's like uses kind of stop motiony aesthetic with like photographs. Mm-hmm. So they did that by having Elliot Page on a treadmill and then painting yeah, out the right. the treadmill after, so that they could get all the photos they needed and like the mm-hmm. motion stuff. Um, that's an interesting thing I didn't say earlier. Um, well, that, that's a great sharing one. now. Yeah, thanks. That's a very good uh, similarity. Both sort of take place in just like very banal American suburbia. Yes. Um, so like aesthetically, they're bizarrely similar films. And yeah. and they're very middle class sort of like like the, the the there's a depiction of like middle class America. And then there's like characters that are wealthy that are sort of separate. Like Gary Busey's wealthy, but everyone else is just kind of poor, including his brother Woodward. Mm-hmm. And then, like, Elliot Page's family, like J.K. Simmons, the dad, and everyone, they're, like, just, like, a lower-class, blue-collar family. But then um, Jennifer Garner and Jason Bateman are, like, far more affluent, but very suburban. Yeah. So there is, like, a, a, ri- a rich poor divide, kind of, or a rich working-class divide. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, Gary Busey's character's brother, Woodward, is his name, Wood- I think? Woodward, yeah. Yeah, he makes video games after he gets home from working two jobs, two blue collar jobs. Both at night. Question Both at mark. night and his <laughs> wife doesn't work. She that, just hangs you, you out and scene swiffers. really pissed me off. Yeah. When she's like, I can just get a job. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'll that, work to me, three felt jobs. like the most Christian moment in a weird way. I was yeah, just like, like yeah, you're, you're really imprisoning your wife to just stay at home and watch over the kids when mm-hmm. she's like easily employable. And he's like, I don't want a stranger raising our kids. Well, that's a, an, another interesting connection between the two is like this idea of the, um, they like the prison of motherhood. Mm. Like it's celebrated in both movies, but also because Woodward's wife, she just is at home swiffering all the time. And as they say, like looking after the kids who seem to be of school age. So what does she do all day? Well, yeah, that's the other, that's the thing. And then also the daughter just runs away. Mm-hmm. Um, and the dog's supposed to watch her, but it's like, 
the kids are old enough they can kind of take care of themselves. Yeah, they should probably be in elementary school. <laughs> and they're often playing outside away from the parents. Mm-hmm. So, also, if he's working nights, he would also be at home. The dialogue, there was some time stuff that didn't work out oh, yeah. in Quigley because he said he needed to another job. His hours were cut back, but it's a night job, but he keeps arriving during the day. Yeah. Doesn't make there's a sense. Lot. I mean, yeah, there's no reason to try and figure out any of the logic behind anything. But he's changing the world one word at a time, Mike. Yes, I know, I know. I loved, though, a scene, though, where he comes home uh, from working two jobs, and then he's like, how are things? And then his wife is like, you can go first. And then he monologues about all of the different jobs he has, and then mm-hmm. we never find out about his wife. There's very... um. I wouldn't even say subtle. There's just like an undertone of just inherent misogyny throughout the film and like what? a very classical home life breakdown. You know what I mean? Surprising for a faith-based film, I would say. Very surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Anyway, meanwhile, in Juno, uh, yeah, the prison of motherhood is like she's 16. She doesn't want to be uh, a mom. Yeah. Because she's got her whole life ahead of her. Mm-hmm. So, there's that. So, this this one's a loosey-goosey one, but both feature uh, creepy creeps. So, Gary Busey just kind of creeps me out in this movie. How he portrays his character, his behavior. Also, kind of hearing the backstory and the behind-the-scenes anecdotes. Kind of just backs up my theory that he's just kind of a creepy dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's real creepy when he's on his hands and knees with the leash around his mouth and the keys in his, or uh, uh, the leash around his throat and then, or his neck, and then the keys in his mouth and he's talking. There's just stuff like that. And I'm like, hmm, weird. And then also, he hates dogs. That's like one of his main character points. Right, right. That's he a just creepy doesn't thing. like dogs for some reason. Yeah, and he's just an asshole. Um, and then Jason Bateman is like also creepy. His character is super creepy and just kind of like just gets a little weirder as the movie goes on in Juno and the whole dynamic between him and Juno gets weirder as the yeah, film goes on. Yeah, he starts hitting on. on her. Yeah, their, rela- their relationship goes from like fr- friendship to sexual kind of pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just odd. So both films have like kind of a creep center stage. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both films revolve around uh, adoption. Uh, that, what? Well, because Juno's having a baby and she's getting that family to adopt. And then there's a family that dog, their dog just died and they want some, a new dog. Right. And so they want to adopt Quigley, but then Quigley can't because Quigley is like some sort of messenger from heaven or something that they don't really explain. And then, then as a deus ex machina, the guy who works at the video game company is like, hey, we just adopted, we just found out about five dogs that are up for adoption. Let's all go and adopt dogs. Yeah, that so was everybody, wild. So everybody kind of gets what they want adoption-wise at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, and a compromise is also made about like a cute new family member. So, you know, in Juno, it's a baby. Uh, and in uh, Quigley, it is some puppies, but it's not Quigley himself. It is a, a, a another Pomeranian, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's great. That's great. Uh, both movies uh, feel extremely dated with technology. So yes, yes. 
So Quigley, you you got your classic. I I maybe I should have taken a tally, but CD ROM mm-hmm. was said unironically about twenty seven times. Yeah, they they always are saying we got to get the CD ROM. Yeah, like every four to eight minutes there was a CD ROM drop. Yeah. Um, and in Juno, you have the hamburger phone. I don't believe a single cell phone is seen. Um, even though cell phones were kind of a thing in 2007. Um, and it, yeah, it just, it just feels a bit dated. You don't really see like computers. You don't, uh, you know, the cars are older. Even the family van was last released in 1997. Mm-hmm. But the film, so the film takes place 10 years later. So that's kind of interesting. So there's, there's just lots of like dated technology. Yeah. There's unwavering support from a father figure in both movies. That being Juno's dad helps like without question. Yeah. Throughout the entire film is very supportive. And in Quigley, uh, God, literal God is like the father figure who kind of sends guidance by way of a guardian angel played by Oz Perkins. But he also gives stern like sassy remarks throughout but they both do because jk simmons is quite sassy as well um and then god just kind of like throws shade the whole time at the guardian angel and at gary Busey. and you know who did the voice of god in wiggly no who william iron hillman the director what is that meta or what that is so meta man there's just so much around quigley that just makes it a fascinating sort of setup uh, also, another similarity in both movies: nobody terminates their pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> true. In Juno, she makes a choice not to, mm-hmm. and it's like the movie doesn't have Christian messaging necessarily, but it's made clear: it's like, you know, this isn't an abortion movie. All right, we're gonna so explore the teen pregnancy angle instead. Yeah. Well, let me just talk about that very quickly. So, Diablo Cody in an interview in like 2018 or something, she was like, she's like the one thing I didn't do right with the film Juno is that I wish there was a scene to just like better explain why the character of Juno didn't get an abortion. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I'm pro-choice. The film is pro-choice and she's pissed because people are interpreting it as a pro-life film. Exactly. Yeah. That was something uh, that I wondered about. She's pissed about it. And she's like, basically just came down to the character just didn't want to. It was nothing Mm -hmm. moral. She just didn't fucking want to, you know? Well, but also it's like there's two different movies right there. You're either making a movie about teen pregnancy, which is like a dramatic uh, story to tell, Mm -hmm. or you're making a movie about uh, teen abortions, which is like a whole other like thing to unravel, Mm -hmm. especially if you're making a kind of quasi-comedy. Yeah. Yeah. So just feel like... You know, if you're going to have a character who gets pregnant, you should just be like, eh, eh we got to have this baby. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this is just going to be a much more kind of minefield of, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, just whatever. Triggering just, subject matter and yeah, also way more political. Um, but it's interesting, both films, whether it inadvertently or not, have become sort of a, a religious material or like mm-hmm. support supporting a religious angle and belief system exactly yeah exactly in both films a person undergoes a physical change Mm -hmm. and learns a lesson afterwards uh and it is it is an emotionally guarded titular character Mm -hmm. so juno uh is guarded via sarcasm Mm -hmm. and um 
I guess Archie, the character who becomes Quigley, it guards himself with, I guess, his selfishness or his money. He's just emotionally, you just can't get to the bottom of this guy. Mm-hmm. But only after he dies and becomes a Pomeranian does he learn a lesson about uh, helping people and faith and some other lessons, probably. You know that old saying, I've died and gone to heaven and come back as a Pomeranian? <laughs> you know that old chestnut? Oh, yeah, that classic story. Oh, this meal is so good, I've died and gone to heaven and come back as a Pomeranian. You know, it's interesting. They both, uh, both protagonists or like, yeah, titular characters carry uh, like the a being because like Quigley yeah. is carrying Gary Busey. Like, 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 you know, Quigley is, is the vehicle for Gary yeah. Busey and Ju- yeah. Juno's the vehicle for the baby. Yeah. There you go. It's kind of interesting. Kind of weird. There are a lot of similarities. You're right. There's a a, a body prison of some kind yeah. involving <laughs> involving a cute thing, you could say. Yeah, like yeah. A baby or a, a Pomeranian. Yeah. We also, uh, what's cuter, Pomeranians or newborns? Uh, I would say often newborns aren't actually that good looking. They're kind of gross. <laughs> they got some discoloration often. Their eyes don't work. They either have no hair or the hair is just starting to crop in. So it looks like they're balding. Mm-hmm. And their bones aren't fused, so they're very lumpy, and they have a ton of fat around the bones. Like, they're just not stretched <laughs> out yet. So, I'd say, you know, new- newborns are real uggos, but a Pomeranian is cute as shit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that out and use it <laughs> out of context where Bob says, newborns aren't that good looking. <laughs> Specifically, newborns are uggos. <laughs> yeah, Bob Bob is not a fan of, of people with non-fused bones. Yeah, yeah. I, I hate it. Get your bones fused, you freaks. Yeah. Ugh. Join um, us with, in, the, in the fused bones community here. Yeah. Uh, um, so this is less of a similarity, but more about like... Uh, a shared DNA thing between both uh, cinematic experiences. Mm-hmm. So Jason Bateman's character is a jingle writer mm-hmm. and all of the songs and the soundtrack, holy shit, soundtrack from uh, uh, Quigley feel like jingles and they kind of yeah. feel like jingles that Jason Bateman's character would have written. Yeah. Yeah. They're, it's terrible. Yeah. They're just kind of like the lowest shitty. form of music. It all sounds like serial theme songs. Yeah. Yeah. Jingles and like Christian rock are mm-hmm. like both kind of at the bottom of the barrel of like music genre. Yes. Yes. Uh, good, good. And nice. like also on the note of uh, music, um, both films feature characters talking about CDs a lot. Right. Right. Because yeah. Juno and, and Mark bond over music. So they're always talking about CDs and exchanging mixes. Uh, and then also in Quigley, there was talking about the CD-ROM that they have to get or hide or something for some reason. Well, they have to get it, and then they have to hide it, and then they have to find it again to destroy it. And what's on the CD-ROM? I don't remember. It's it's his voice memo saying that he's going to shut down like a bunch of the stuff in the company to save money and become profitable again. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. He plays the CD-ROM in his CD player in his Porsche convertible. He listens to his own CD-ROM of himself, just talk, reminding himself that he's going to fire people. <laughs> but obviously, he knows what's on it. He's just listening to it again for some reason. 
it's obviously a plot point and they just needed it to be said so Mm -hmm. that's why they did it but it wouldn't make sense for him to listen to it i mean similarly the scene where rain wilson is working in the convenience store in juno uh, and he just kind of says a bunch of stuff that's like, why would anybody talk to somebody like this? Yeah, it's yeah. just to, to further the plot. It's like, oh, Juno's pregnant now, right? Right. And that Juno has been coming in here a bunch of times. So, buying, uh, speaking kids. speaking of pregnancy, both films feature pregnancy. So <laughs> you have Juno who's pregnant. Obviously, that's the point of the whole movie. But mm-hmm. when Gary Busey's character goes to heaven. They start reminding him of sins he's committed, and one of them is uh, that he has a pregnant employee, and he doesn't have benefits, so that they're financially fucked. Right, right. You remember that part? Mm-hmm. And they say, like, what about your pregnant employee who you, like, fired or whatever, and you didn't have benefits for them, and blah, blah, blah. So both feature pregnancy in some way. Interesting. Well, I mean, there's pregnancy off screen in Quigley also because some dog somewhere has a litter of five Pomeranians. Right, right. And they make sure to just tell you just so that they can be like, oh, these people can adopt a dog because that's what they want. So everybody gets what they want. Maybe that's like a wink at like, that's how many dogs they went through making the movie. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Because, you know, that Pomeranian's just like so floofy and white the whole time. And like, you couldn't film with one dog all day. It would look like shit by the end of the day. Another similarity is there's like impressionistic dialogue about media. Mm. So in by impressionistic, I mean like in Quigley, uh, whenever they're talking about computer games and video games, they're talking about it in such broad strokes that mm-hmm. you know that whoever wrote it knows nothing about video games <laughs> to the point where they put in this Christian video game that the the blue collar guy is designing. And within seconds, the other characters who are playing it, who are adults who work for a video game company that make violent video games, like this is the best game I've ever played. But every know. time you see the screen, it looks like utter garbage. It is unplayable. <laughs> There's barely any movement on screen. It's just a bunch of text boxes and like weird animals looking into an ocean. (laughs) Yeah, that was such a surreal moment. Yeah. And then they talk about CD-ROMs. They talk about, there's a one point where they go to the the building that Gary Busey's character as a human works. Woodward is like, um, where is this? And then his wife is like some sort of technology company. So it's all very like impressionistic dialogue about video games and technology. Similarly in Juno, whenever they talk about music, it's like you're, they're supposed to be music nerds, but they're like, it's the most basic conversation. Oh yeah. Oh, have you heard the Stooges? They, they rock my punk ass, man. It's like, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. If you're like a music head, you'd just be like, Hmm, that's not how people talk when they're actually passionate about music. Yeah. Cause it's, it's yeah, it's it's strange because Juno is 16, so she's allowed to just have bad music taste. Yeah. But Jason or Bateman have, or to have like to think that bands like the most popular bands are cool and indie is like it's fine because you're young and you are just kind of getting introduced to this stuff, but mm-hmm. yeah, just the way that they talk was very impressionistic. I I found where but it didn't seem genuine ever. Um both films feature a uh, bizarre eroticism. Okay, so hear me out. So in Quigley, there are multiple instances where Gary Busey has a leash around his neck and he's walking on all fours. And that is imagery you could very easily transplant into a sexual scenario. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, like a sub 
and the <laughs> the angel is a dom. Um, and then in uh, Juno, uh, as Mark and Juno's relationship sort of manifests into something inappropriate, uh, it becomes more and more oh, yeah. sort of like erotic and sexual and like he's touching her belly and you know they're slow they're dancing slow dancing yes so there's just moments where you're like mm, this is crossing the boundary and becoming sexual and erotic yeah well also like there's a pregnancy kink as well yeah 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 so um so yeah just both both films are real real horny <laughs> yeah i guess you could say that yeah <laughs> Uh, inappropriately so in both yeah, cases, yeah, I would both, say. Yeah, both, yeah. Body language slash vibe. Um, <laughs> Oz Perkins and Michael Cera are very similar in their respective roles. Yeah, they are kind just of like similar. Tonally, they're just like wimpy, lanky, weirdo white dudes who are just kind of like weird and just they're just slinking around. It's true, they do. Yeah, they are slinky yeah. guys. Yeah, so that's that's my last one. I want to end on a high note. So the slinky one is what I'll end with. <laughs> yeah, I'll do a little. I'll do a little lightning round just to finish her off. Okay. Okay. So okay, here we go. Quickly, I'll try and do this quickly. Quigly. I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. Oh my god, there's a new bit. I'll try and do this as quickly as possible. Do you know? <laughs> okay. So nice. number one, there is a birth slash death dichotomy in the two films in that. A birth or a death causes a change in the person, uh, as in she has to give birth and he dies. Um, uh, yeah. And as a result, there's a change to how the character pees because uh, Quigley has to pee like a dog. And at one point he says, I hurt my leg peeing, lifting my leg. And then Juno talks about peeing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the theme of both films on some level is must love dogs. Because mm-hmm. uh, Juno's stepmom is like obsessed with dogs, but she's not allowed to have one because of the allergy to dog saliva that Juno has. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it goes without saying in Quigley that uh, Gary Busey's character literally hates dogs to the point where that's the first thing we see him do is just threaten to exterminate all dogs. And then chases one and falls on the dog's uh, doo-doo. Uh, in both films, an actor who enjoyed an 80s heyday features prominently so mm. uh, booger from revenge of the nerds mm-hmm. curtis armstrong i think is his name uh he's a character in quigley and then also in um in juno the jason bateman is in there oh yeah yeah i guess he was a child actor and he's a child actor in the 80s yeah it's in teen wolf 2 and some sitcom he was apparently at, at the time he was the youngest person to join the director's guild oh really because he was still a teenager what did he direct as a teen? Like a, an episode of a TV show he was on. Oh, right. He did. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So he, he, he set the record for youngest new member of the, D, of the Directors Guild. DGA. Mm. There we go. Um, both films are feature God some, in some capacity. Mm-hmm. That being Juno is the name of a Greek God. Uh, Queen mm-hmm. of Heaven, I believe, is what it, stands, what it means. And, uh, you know, in, in Quigley, God is uh, God. Uh, the character of God is representing God. Mm-hmm. And um, also in some ways, Quigley is also God. I don't know. It seems unclear because the end theme music, they have this song about, it's like Christian rock and you think it's about Jesus, but it seems like it's about Quigley, a dog. 
Because they literally say, you are a dog. You've helped people or something like that. But this is like written as if it was about Jesus. But then they surprise you in the chorus by saying, you are a dog. <laughs> you are a Pomeranian. But it's a very um, sort of like evangelical song. You mm-hmm. know, like it's a very like religious poppy song, like the style of it. Uh, both films feature needle drops. So there's a lot of like, oh. just like music tracks that just, that just kind of come out of nowhere constantly mm-hmm. and they play the whole song. Cool. So they'll play these Moldy Peaches songs in Juno, which is kind of like one of the main stylistic choices of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the main reasons that the film was like as popular as it was. because that was the music Elliot was Page's so- idea. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So they were the one who was like, I think the characters should be really into the Moldy Peaches and another band. I can't remember the other one. Uh, yeah, I can't remember the other one. Because it, but... it ends on Moldy Peaches, but the first song is from another band, but it's like a similar, a similar yeah, there's, fi. There's Twee. It's Twee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and in, you know, Quigley, they just play these like long ass songs about Jesus or about helping people and getting a second chance and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like the songs always kind of spell the emotional beats that are happening. Yeah. Like in both movies. You know what really weirded me out? Just a sidebar. This, this seemed to discredit the entire film, but at the climax of the film, Gary Busey has been returned to the afterlife and mm-hmm. they're deliberating on whether or not he can go back as a person. And God says, your good deeds don't matter, only blind faith faith or whatever. And I was like, what the fuck? That just disregards all the good shit he's doing. It does, yeah. Uh, That was very conflicting to the theme of the film, I thought. And that's like a common thing you do see and hear. Well, but but also that's like the, the, that's the whole thing with like, christianity kind of mm-hmm. or just religion at that level it's, it's, it's service and devotion but it's yeah. like there's such an impetus and a focus on being like morally correct but then it's like just interesting like literally have god say no 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 none of that matters you believing in me is what matters and that'll mm-hmm. get you into heaven and then he wakes up in the er and then he s- keeps doing good deeds both films feature hollywood royalty so Jason Reitman is the director of Juno and his dad is Ivan Reitman. So Jason who, who Reitman is like, uh, you know, a big deal. He's a big deal. Yeah. He's like the comedy director of the 70s and 80s. Do you want to know how he, he got the job? How? Jennifer Garner got him the job. How so? So she suggested Jason Bateman after they had worked together on a film in 2006. No, but I'm talking about how did Jason Reitman get the job? Oh, Jason Reitman? That's You're a great question. You're getting your question. Jasons mixed up. Oh, geez. That's embarrassing. <laughs> Fuck me. I have no idea how he got this gig. Definitely because uh, he's this guy's kid. No, that's what he, I said. he made thank you for smoking. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Cut all that anyway, out. Anyway. Uh, uh, but in Quigley, the Hollywood royalty is Oz Perkins is the son of Anthony Perkins from Psycho. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of odd. And he's gone on to be a director of horror films he made uh, the pretty things are going to hell and the black coat's daughter which i hear is really good but he's also playing the angel in this christian movie about a pomeranian where he's constantly doing pratfalls so this like uh also another interesting fact about oz perkins is that like anthony perkins died of aids complications in the 90s and his mom whose name is barry berenson she died on flight 11 in the 9-11 attacks what 
Yeah, isn't that wild? What? Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was like, wow. When I was just kind of like learning, I was like, who's Oz Perkins? I've heard that name before. And so I like did some deep diving on him, learned that he's the son of Anthony Perkins from Psycho. But then also, it also said his mom is Barry Berenson, and then her death date is 9-11-2001. Oh my <laughs> and I'm like, God. how did she die on 9-11? That's like just wild timing. And it turns out she was on one of the flights. That is fucked. So Oz Perkins, I mean, not making fun of the guy, but just like he's coming into making Quigley with two dead parents. And one of them died two years prior on 9-11. So wow. just like, how is that? That's in his head while he's making this film. Definitely. Somewhere. Uh, yeah. So him and Gary Busey are kind of going through a lot in their own heads while they're making Quigley of all movies. That's that's crazy. Like that yeah. that is absolutely astounding. I know. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of similar when we did the Ghoulies episode and there was that one actor who was working with Francis Ford Coppola and then he killed one of the Coppola kids. Yeah. He killed while his they son. were making this movie. Yeah. And then he was later in Ghoulies. Yeah. And we were comparing fuck? it with, we were comparing it with Spike Jones's her, which was like <laughs> connected to the Coppola's like, there's all these weird connections sometimes. Oh yeah. I actually just saw some photos from 1995 of Sofia Coppola and Spike Jones at an event and Tim mm-hmm. Burton's just in the background and he looks hilarious. Like it's such oh, yeah. an unflattering photo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, anyway, one last little thing about these two movies. Uh, there's like an intersection of kids and horror films in both films. That being Juno, Mark is really into horror films and so is Juno. And they kind of like talk about these obscure directors in like very impressionistic ways. Once again, just like you like Dario Argento, he's right. the worst kind of thing. Uh, meanwhile, in Quigley, like Oz Perkins is a horror director whose father is from Psycho. He's like a uh, horror benchmark. Yeah. But then also like just there's so many of these movies like this that are made by people who make kids movies and low budget horror films. Mm-hmm. Uh, just looking through the catalog of a whole, a whole bunch of the actors, the director himself, or just other people connected to the film. There's like kids movies and horror films kind of sprinkled in through their, their, their filmography. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've encountered quite a bit, actually. Like a talking cat, that guy made some like horror-ish films. Um, the people who made the Ghoulies also like worked and like the Charles Band Productions company that like worked with the Ghoulies. They also made like some kids movies too. Yeah. It's like this weird thing in, in movie in Hollywood where they'll just do both because it's, I mean, opportunistic. It's just easy to make money that way. Well, yeah, and a gig's a gig at the end of the day for most folks, you know? You don't even look exactly. at what you're doing. No, clearly not, no, especially with this one. Anyway, that's a, that's a bit of a lightning round, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. That was so in-depth, Mike. Man, you're, you're so uh, comprehensive. I only did, like, 20 minutes of research. <laughs> Probably <laughs> spent good, 20 bro. minutes, like, just, but just, like, the internet was a real rabbit hole today. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think Quigley is abnormal in that there's so much to unpack and really just explore in terms of just the periphery of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, the things surrounding it are way more interesting than the film itself. You could do a yeah. whole mini on Quigley and like why and, the fuck it exists. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely we'll be back for Quigley too. When definitely. It's finally... I, I look forward to the release of that train arriving <laughs> that movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
woo, woo. Oh, I can a, hear the, uh, the Quigley train coming. Uh, and then the, the smoke coming out of the smokestack or little like 2D animations of Quigley. Like it's a little t- like thing of smoke and then it just morphs into a little white dog mm-hmm. and floats away and evaporates. And then just every tuft of smoke is a little white dog. Yeah. Damn. Quigley was a cute ass dog. Quigley was, was cute dog. as shit. And Quigley definitely deserved an award. Yeah, for I best hope dog Quigley actor. got paid. Anyway, I mean this this episode was uh, very front loaded. It was not it a lot was. of. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of wild, wild stuff about Quigley. <laughs> so uh, I mean, we can probably we don't need to like really unless there's something you want to talk about. Not really. I think I think there was so much meandering at the beginning and in the middle that that makes up for you know how uh, you know we do the third part where it's just a random just discussion kind of topic, talking about topics. Yeah, yeah. I just think I think we we really really covered the map throughout the epi. I mean, we really did. Yeah, it was a you know this what was we an didn't do is what? do this episode quickly. That's for sure because <laughs> no. this sucker is long. We can just kind of end the episode. With this like interview that Gary Busey does about Quigley, where he oh, talks sweet. about himself in the third person. I think that would be the most perfect way to end it. Yeah. So without further ado, I suppose, here's uh, Gary Busey talking about his experience on the film Quigley. And uh, yeah, come back next week for another episode of From Justin to Kane, where we watch a bad movie and a good movie, talk about how they're the same. And, you know, just uh, just kind of banter. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Bye. (laughs) (laughs) You monster. This movie is about coming out of darkness into light, with God playing a trick on you, sending you back as a Pomeranian to make it work for you and your family, your heart, your truth, your identity, and your sole purpose of being a human being, and that is to be kind to those who suffer. Be helpful. Consider other people's feelings first. And this is an incredible transformation that this man Archie goes through. Well, I got news for you. Gary Busey went through the same thing in my life. Being belligerent, being mean, not caring about other people's feelings, using drugs to dilute my feelings and my truth. A real wake-up call. And when you have a motorcycle accident and you hit your head on the curb going 45 miles an hour and you die after massive brain surgery and you go to the other side, get information. Well, that happened to me. And it's so great to be living in a place that Gary Busey has found by dealing with my heroes and my villains and my demons and my angels, that it's not just me that puts Archie together. It's a story. It's a director, Bill Hillman. Producer Russ Cavanaugh, incredible crew and staff that work from their hearts. And because I have been through Archie Quigley in my own way, back to Archie again in a good way, Gary in a good way, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place to be. It's a great celebration of life. And that's what the moral of this story is for everyone. Every question we have, the answers to that question lies in your heart of hearts. Where's the birthplace of all of your truths? Now this movie, hmm. The redemption part of it, the hopeful message it gives, that has to do with one thing only, and that's finding your truth and finding your identity and accepting it with respect. 
and care for other people's feelings before you care about yours. And our responsibilities, take care of your responsibilities first. Then others will be inspired by the care you give yourself, that they will take care of their responsibilities seeing the changes you've made from your darkness to your life, from your negative to your positive. God just have a way of getting your attention. He did it with me with a motorcycle wreck and cancer in me face and an out-of-body experience after the death, after the brain surgery. I'm so happy to be alive. This is a great picture to be in, to be giving this message of hope and redemption. But most of all, bottom line, the truth of yourself, who you really are. You're nothing better than you. You are your own best friend. You're your captain. Look at yourself in a very close-up mirror and see what God's given you to be and the beauty He showed you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It's a motion picture that does not deserve a rating. It is for everybody to see. It is for the parents to see and the children to see and together because it's family values. A big family, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, go see it together. It's a family experience because it's about the love of the family and what holds the family together is love. There's faith, hope, and love, but the most enduring one of them all is love. This is a movie for all ages, all races, all religions, because it has to do with one thing, and that's finding the truth of yourself and acknowledging what is good to be done.